This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday, the 25th of October. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. One of the two Israeli hostages freed yesterday has been telling her story to the world. 85-year-old Yochevev Lipchez says she was taken to a spiderweb of underground tunnels, that it was terrifying, but she was treated well in captivity. Hamas snatched more than 200 people on October the 7th during raids on Israel. Just four hostages have been released so far. Meanwhile, Israel says its troops are ready and determined to destroy Hamas. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Ashdod in southern Israel. Alison, Yochaved Lipshez has given a very detailed account of what it was like as a hostage. She's also talked about her captors, what she had to say. This has just been about 24 hours since she and another woman, Nurit Cooper, were released by Hamas into the care of the Red Cross across the Egyptian border. As you said, this 85-year-old grandmother has given a pretty frank account of what happened to her as she was captured by Hamas terrorists and taken to Gaza. She said she was taken on the back of a motorcycle and then they were eventually put into the tunnel network, which is supposed to be... A a 500-kilometre-long network of tunnels that run underneath Gaza. She described it as a spiderweb and that she had to walk through the tunnels on wet ground. And she describes what it was like for 17 days as she was held there as captive. She said that a medic and a doctor came and that the hostages were put on mattresses. She said doctors came every couple of days and she described the treatment by Hamas as good, saying that that her captors made sure the conditions were sanitary and that they were very friendly to the people who had been captured and that they took care of all of their needs. While she was giving this quite extraordinary press conference, she also took a bit of a swipe at Israel saying that the lack of knowledge by the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force and the Shin Bet here about what Hamas had been planning uh, really hurt the people of Israel badly and the people of Israel had become scapegoats for poor leadership. She said that there were multiple signs ahead of the onslaught uh, that something was coming and that the IDF had somehow not taken it very seriously. She was being translated by her daughter. Have a listen. My mom is saying that they, they were very friendly towards them and that they took care of them, that they were given the medicine. They were given medicine and they were uh, treated. One of the men with them um, had badly injured from, from a motorbike accident on the way and the paramedic was looking after his wounds. He was given... Uh, um, medicine and antibiotics, uh, that the people were friendly, that they kept the place very clean, they were very concerned about them. Alison, when Yotchev Livshets was released, she shook the hand of a Hamas official and said shalom or peace. There's been a bit of controversy over that. Yeah, she says she was doing that because of the sensitivity of the situation and I guess also an acknowledgement that there are still more than 200 
captives being held somewhere within Gaza. It is suspected most of them are being held in those tunnels that this 85-year-old grandmother has been held in as well. There's been a little bit of controversy about her commentary as well because some have, although not attacking her, have said that uh, it's quite uh, irresponsible of the government to allow her to uh, make these comments because it has almost looked like propaganda for Hamas by saying that Hamas had treated her well and it had treated the people around her well. Uh, I think the thing we have to remember at the same time when viewing these comments is that uh, her husband and the husband of Nurit Cooper, who was also released, uh, they are still part of the hostages that are being held there, uh, along with 200 or so other um, Israeli and dual citizens at the same time. Just on those hostages, is there an update on the negotiations to free them? Well, it seems that there is a lot of attention on uh, those sort of negotiations at the moment and I think that's one of the reasons we've seen a softening around the language of a ground offensive. It seems it's been kind of delayed to give bodies like the US more time to have those mediations and the feeling is that going in with a, a wide-scale aggressive ground offensive right at this point in time could be detrimental to those negotiations and also detrimental to the safety of the people that are being held there and uh, the ability to get them out alive. So uh, the negotiations are still ongoing. There has been some reporting that uh, there could be a mass release of 50 hostages, mainly uh, dual citizens with uh, dual nationalities is what we're hearing. We haven't got any firm details on that, just a lot of speculation in the Israeli media at the moment. But uh, as I said, Qatar is sort of leading those negotiations and the US very keen to see their citizens out as well. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn. And Australia is sending additional soldiers and aircraft to the Middle East due to the deteriorating situation. Is the acting Prime Minister Richard Miles on ABC News Breakfast. It is a, a significant contingent which goes with these two additional aircraft which joins the uh, one additional aircraft which uh, is still in the Middle East. So that takes a total to three. And again, we're not identifying where they will be. But the point of this is to provide uh, support to Australian populations who are in the Middle East uh, if, if this gets worse, in, in essence. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a volatile situation. We very much hope it doesn't. Uh, we hope that this is confined to uh, Israel and Gaza. Uh, but, you know, we're all watching this as the world is watching this mm. and uh, we want to make sure that we're prepared if matters do get worse. And as the situation does uh, get worse in Gaza, Palestinian and Jewish communities here are suffering deeply. Palestinian leaders say their people are in a constant state of despair. Jewish groups are grieving too and promising to remind us all that hostages are still being held by Hamas. Kathleen Ferguson reports. Nasser Mashni's grief for Palestinians in Gaza is no longer just emotional. It's also now physical. We can barely go to sleep. Sleep looks like a coma. We wake up frantically reaching for our phones, just hoping that um, we don't have a message from a loved one that might be a last message. The president of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network tells me he feels this pain deeply in his bones. Our shared humanity, where's the, the inflection point for humanity? How bad does it have to get 
When, when will the world cry out, never again? He wants Australians of all backgrounds to pressure the federal government to do more to help end the fighting. Whoever is left behind suffers, mourns equally. A small charity in Western Sydney is doing what it can to help Palestinians in Gaza. It's called the Sweatshop Literacy Movement, set up to help First Nations communities and people of colour through reading, writing and critical thinking. In just a couple of days, they have raised thousands of dollars, selling hundreds of copies of Racial Politics of Australian Multiculturalism, written by a University of Melbourne professor, Ghassan Haj. Dr Michael Mohammed Ahmad runs the organisation. He says it's good to be raising more money than he expected, but he says he wishes he wasn't in this position in the first place. It's such an unbelievable waste of humanity that we, ha we are in a situation now where we're trying to fix something that shouldn't have been destroyed to begin with. And I'm talking about lives and I'm talking about land. Jewish people around the world are also mourning and doing what they can for their community. In Sydney's eastern suburbs, a group of Jewish mothers is working together to raise awareness about the dozens of hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza. They recently organised a Shabbat at Bondi Beach, which saw a table set with 200 empty seats to represent the captives. Lauren Plax is one of the women behind the event. I don't think we've ever felt like this in our day and age. I think, you know, we, we've got extra security outside our synagogues and our schools. Our kids are asking questions. They're hiding their uniforms. I think um, globally Jews are feeling really, in some ways, very united and more united than we've ever been um, by trying to show our solidarity together, but also really alone because this attack was brought to us. She says more events are planned. We just want to do it peacefully and just to keep it in the headlines to ensure that no one forgets we're trying and that Israel and the families there know that we are with them in trying to fight for their right to have their family back with them where they belong. Jewish community organiser Lauren Plack sending that report from Kathleen Ferguson. Anthony Albanese has given details about his government's plans to double the incentives available for the critical minerals industry and how it plans to loosen tight controls over military equipment sharing with the United States. The two announcements were made during the second day of the Prime Minister's official visit to Washington. Our correspondent, Greg Jennett, is there. We want to move Australia up the international value chain in critical minerals. And Standing on Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House behind him, the Prime Minister threw an extra $2 billion into an already existing investment fund, doubling its reserves to $4 billion. That's chump change against the Biden administration's mammoth Inflation Reduction Act that's supposed to spur $3 trillion US dollars worth of investment in clean energy. But the Albanese government government reckons it'll lure investors into industries processing the lithium, nickel, cobalt and more needed for cleaner energy to flourish. Value adding as well. That's the big next step that we need to do. In previous booms, foreign investments tipped towards extracting ores and shipping them off with minimal processing in Australia. The Prime Minister's eager to change that. We absolutely see a future in Australia for us making batteries. I'll have more to say about that. 
By far the most urgent objective of this four-day visit is to encourage the techy US Congress and Senate to pass laws enabling the sale of Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines and the sharing of technology to build future AUKUS-class subs. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby insists the administration's doing its bit to convince US politicians with its extra $3.5 billion US dollars awaiting approval to pick up the pace of construction in America's two submarine shipyards. Money that we're asking for for the submarine industrial base, obviously it's tied to AUKUS, no question about that. But it's also tied to our larger equities in the Indo-Pacific region. We have um, maintained a significant amount of military capability. A lot of that is naval capability. And of course, given the threats and challenges that are in that part of the world, um, our submarines are... Are, uh, are force multipliers, no question about it. There's not much Australia can do to break an impasse on Capitol Hill, but it can promise to speed up the transfer of its own military technology to its AUKUS partners. And that'll happen with new laws now being drafted. A ballast for our argument of why... This legislation is required to be passed by the Congress and the Senate. Overshadowed by the horror unfolding in the Middle East, the Prime Minister's visit will have some things to show for itself. Other announcements are still to come on space industry cooperation and undersea fibre optic cable projects. That's after Anthony Albanese and his partner Jody Hayden sup with the Bidens in the White House tonight. In Washington, this is Greg Jennett reporting for AM. Cattle prices in Australia are plummeting as producers sell off huge numbers of stock before the big dry sets in. The sudden change in conditions has come as a shock to many producers who only recently were enjoying record high prices. Adding to their frustration that beef prices have barely shifted at the supermarket is National Regional Affairs reporter Jane Norman. Everyone has their own inflation conversion rate to measure wistfully how the buying power of their dollar has sunk. City folk often talk of one less coffee a day or a yearly beachside holiday gone. Out in central Queensland, grazier Ian McCamley crunches his inflation calculator like this. If 12 months or more ago you were a cattle breeder and you had to muster 100 wieners and sell them to pay your interest bill on a given amount of debt, you now need to go and muster 1,200 wieners to pay exactly the same interest bill on exactly the same loan. Wieners are young cattle and the price Ian McCamley is getting for his has tanked. So a wiener that might have been making $1,800 to $2,000 is now down around the $500 to $600 sort of range. You know, I've had producers ring me up pleading with us to buy their cattle for any figure, name your figure. Um, There is sales now getting no bids and online. I think probably the interesting part is it's just crept up on people really quickly. Australia's beef herd and sheep flock are at their highest levels in a decade after three really good seasons. But the conditions are changing rapidly. The country's drying out, there's limited feed and many farmers are now offloading a lot of stock. It's creating a bottleneck at abattoirs, which were already struggling with worker shortages 
before this sudden sell-off. I've been referring to it as the perfect storm and uh, I think people are hurting. Elka Cleverton is a beef producer in Harden in New South Wales. And what's frustrating people is that in the supermarkets, no one's really noticed anything. The price has collapsed probably nearly eight, ten months ago now and um, we're still paying the same price at, at the retail end. And why is that? I think even farmers realise that the livestock is only the start of the supply chain. And of course, there are middlemen and processes and there's a huge amount of cost involved in processing the animals. And, and of course, everyone wants to make a dollar and that's okay. But when you have a price collapse of of 60% or more, you should see some impact at the other end. According to Jason Strong from Meat and Livestock Australia, beef prices have fallen in recent months by about 8% or a dollar a kilo. That's certainly a, a really challenging one to reconcile when you see your livestock price drop so fast. But we are seeing a, a smaller drop-off in the retail price. The good thing is we're seeing increase in volume being purchased as well. And that demand is ultimately what producers need to survive long-term. Jane Norman reporting. Every week we're hearing different reports about the world's climate. Another is out this morning. It says many of the planet's vital signs have worsened to the point where life on Earth is imperilled. Ahead of next month's global climate change conference known as COP28, the paper's authors are calling for governments to speed up the transition from fossil fuels. Oliver Gordon reports. Stridently and in no uncertain terms, a group of climate scientists has again raised the alarm about climate change. The 2023 State of the Climate Report, published in the journal Bioscience, claims life on planet Earth is under siege and we are now in uncharted climate territory. Australian co-author of the study, Dr Thomas Newsom, stands by the alarmist language. Yes, a purposefully strong language because the the trends that we're plotting from our point of view are, are alarming in terms of the impacts of climate change on different vital signs. In 2015, the world agreed that to prevent the potentially irreversible effects of climate change, average temperatures should not exceed that of pre-industrial times by more than 1.5 degrees. But after tracking the Earth's vital signs, such as surface and ocean temperatures, Arctic sea ice levels and global tree cover, Dr Newsom says it's unlikely we'll meet that goal. 2.6 degrees is, is what I've seen or, or read recently is what is being expected at the moment. The findings are as alarming as they are depressing. And if you feel deflated by them, you're not alone. Psychologist Dr Jodie Lowinger says she's seen an uptick in a condition she's termed eco-anxiety at her clinic. Yeah, and particularly around um, our younger adults or um, the adolescent clients that we see, anxiety typically clusters around things that trigger a discomfort with uncertainty. And really eco-uncertainty or eco-anxiety taps into our primitive survival instincts of wanting to make sure that ourselves and our loved ones are safe and well. She says taking small steps towards a lighter footprint can help alleviate symptoms. That can be such a helpful thing to feel like we're focusing on the things that can make a difference in our life within the footprint that we have. But when it comes to our leaders, the climate researchers responsible for today's report say small steps aren't enough. Their list of demands includes an end to fossil fuel subsidies, scaled-up forest protection efforts and international coal elimination treaties. Dr Newsom says the Australian government is one of many that could be doing more. 
our emissions are flat, not going down, and we still have considerable tax breaks and for the fossil fuel industry, in a sense supporting one of the main contributors to climate change. His message to the many global leaders that will gather in Dubai for COP28 next month is clear. Speed up. Otherwise, um, the impacts uh, that we're seeing on the ground in terms of extreme weather events and things like that are only going to get worse. In a statement provided to AM, Assistant Minister for Climate Change Jenny McAllister says some impacts of climate change are now unavoidable and national risk and adaption plans are being developed. Oliver Gordon reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. When Hamas attacked Israel just over two weeks ago, they took more than 200 hostages back to Gaza. Since the weekend, the militant group has started releasing some of them. Today, expert in hostage-taking and recovery, Danny Gilbert, on how their freedom was negotiated and whether more can be saved. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.